Mississippi lawmakers have long targeted and suppressed black voters from exercising their full political power. In the latest of these anti-democratic attacks, the Mississippi state legislature is planning to take judicial power away from the elected officials of Jackson, Mississippi, a city that is over 80% black. Instead, they want to put it in the hands of white state officials. Joining us to explain what's happening is Arika Bennett-Scott of Mississippi Votes. This is Defending Democracy, a weekly podcast from Democracy Docket. We're your hosts. I'm Mark Elias. And I'm Paige Moskowitz. Let's get started. Joining us is Arika Bennett-Scott, the Executive Director of Mississippi Votes and Mississippi Votes Action Fund. Both organizations focus on year-round voter engagement. So far, Mississippi Votes has registered more than 30,000 new voters throughout the state. Arika is also an Emerson Collective Fellow in the Democracy Cohort, focusing on Mississippi felon disenfranchisement laws. Arika, thank you for joining us today on Defending Democracy. Thank you for having me. So let me start at the beginning. How did you get into this work? Yeah, I was a student at Jackson State University. So before all of that, my, my grandparents were like heavily involved in the NAACP in Walthall County and community organizers in their own right. But uh, I didn't know that. I didn't have the language for that. But when I got to Jackson State University um, in the fall of 2011, there were a number of incidents regarding sexual assault and um, Initiative 26, if y'all remember personhood, was on the ballot that year and everything that I cared about, um, my bodily autonomy, my voice as a young person, democracy, all of those things were at stake um, with that particular ballot measure. And it was my first election and I remember getting a ton of my peers to vote, getting them registered to vote and turning out a lot of the student population on my campus to vote and having the support of of administrators and professors on campus um, allowing space for us to um, talk about abortion access and birth control and emergency contraception. And so that was kind of my, my beginning point into organizing around politics and policy agendas um, and fast forward. Yeah, <laughs> so that that's it for me. And now you run Mississippi Votes. Yeah, uh, four years. How does that organization fit in the arc of your development of these issues and this passion? At JSU, um, I founded a Black Feminist Collective, and a lot of it was around, um, you know, creating space for young people to have a voice or young women and girls to have voice around um, interpersonal dating, violence, sexual assault, having control over their reproductive destinies. And a lot of that was uniquely tethered to um, voting, frankly, and some type of policy. So 2016, Mayor Lumumba was getting ready to run for office, and I was one of the young people who was um, organizing young people on his campaign and met some cool young people doing research around voting trends right after the 2016 election who were getting ready to uh, start Mississippi votes and my relationship with them grew into like you know me, me developing um, you know some type of policy agenda with them and some some framing around like what the organization could be doing because it wasn't doing a good job at engaging people of color and black folks at that point point. Um, 
And, you know, you fast forward to today, we have engaged over, um, well, all of the electorate, the eligible voting electorate in Mississippi. Um, and we've registered over 50,000 new voters, young people, black people, people living on the margins of what it means to be marginalized in Mississippi. And so our programming is super innovative and very high tech. Um, we do tons of digital engagement. We have tons of youth programs from high school to college and even folks who are college adjacent, college age, but um, not necessarily in the traditional educational realm. Um, and yeah, we inevitably believe that our deep investment in Mississippi's voters will cultivate this transformative culture of civic engagement. And we, we've seen evidence of that since 2018's midterm election when young people showed out in record numbers to vote. Um, and so, yeah, I think what we're doing uh, I think what we're doing isn't new, right? We're doing it in the tradition of Freedom Summer and the way that those young people were organized and how leaderful their movement was. And what we're doing is just a continuum. I want to talk to you a little bit about that history and about sort of how, what the through line is between the work that we saw in the 1960s and Mississippi Vote Today. But before we get to that, you know, we hear a lot in the popular media about this state and its voting laws and that state and voter suppression and you know walkouts in the capitol in texas and sb202 in georgia and you know the federal freedom to vote act talk to uh, talk to me a little bit tell our audience what is it like to be a voter in mississippi you know what are the challenges that you face as you look at the landscape unique to mississippi anybody who knows me knows and anybody who's you know aligned with our organization knows that there is this historic, you know, disinvestment in Mississippi's uh, voters. There's a significant lack of voter education. Um, the voter rolls are inaccurate. There's just, the, there's a shadow of Jim Crow everywhere you look. Um, there's a sense of poll taxing. There's voter disenfranchisement. And we can go on and on and on about the 1890 Constitutional Convention and how it um, really laid the precedent for how Mississippi and other Southern states are disenfranchising voters in, in large number and disproportionately um, African-American voters. So um, voting in Mississippi is is a tough thing, right? Like there are systemic barriers in place for folks who can't even um, get an absentee ballot. So there's not online voter registration. We don't have automatic voter registration, no same day registration. Um, we don't have no excuse early voting. <laughs> absentee voting is a form of poll taxing because you gotta, if you need an absentee ballot, you have to tell the, the circuit clerk that you need one via letter. They have to send it to you via mail. You have to pay for the mail to get, you know what I'm saying? Like there's, there's like three or $4 that go into all of this and you have to get it signed by, um, a notary who knows a notary and people oftentimes have to pay for a notary exactly so that's and from my calculation because we experimented with this with some of our students um this is a 25 dollar fee you got to pay for the postage to and from each time you send the request when you get the absentee ballot when you mail it back and in between you have to pay the notary and notary fees fluctuate too so it may be more than 25 dollars from for some folks um senator blunt who's in 
the uh, Mississippi State Legislature, his daughter has a unique story of trying to vote absentee. So you even have folks who are elected being impacted by these very really ridiculous voting laws. There's just so much. And, you know, you and I talked in California a couple of months ago about even um, when it comes to felony disenfranchisement, when there are 150,000 folks who could otherwise vote in Mississippi, but are not eligible because of something like timber larceny being um, attached to their conviction or their, or their, their record. Um, and, you know, if you're not pardoned by the governor or become a bill of uh, suffrage through the state legislature, it's almost impossible to get your suffrage back. So, I mean, we can, we can do this for days. There are many barriers in Mississippi um, to casting a vote. So I want to focus on something you said that I am sure our listeners are not familiar with. And it is really an astonishing reality in 2023. I mean, you know, people sometimes think and they hear Jim Crow and they think, okay, well, that was, you know, that ended 50, 60 years ago, which isn't true at all anywhere. But in Mississippi, there was a constitutional convention in 1890 that was called specifically for the purpose of disenfranchising black voters. Like, that was its own purpose. Like, and by the way, I don't say that because, like, I am interpreting fragments of historical records. That is what the people at the time said they were doing. They needed an emergency convention because there was a risk they thought that that newly enfranchised freed black men, at that point it was only men who could vote, um, would take over and be able to elect candidates. And so they enacted a racist constitution. And I think that that wouldn't surprise people, what I just said, but here's the part. We're still living with parts of that constitution today. And I wonder if you could talk about what that means, both psychologically, but also practically on the ground, that when you talk about felon disenfranchisement, you're talking about something that has its origins in racism. The 1890 Constitutional Convention, um, and you're right, on record, the folks who convened that constitution said, we have come here today, quote, we've come here today to exclude the Negro. And I could go on and on and on with more um, egregious things that were said, but like that particular piece, um, you know, it, it echoed through generations. It still stands, right? Like marginalized folks in Mississippi are still disenfranchised and are still impacted by the remnants of this particular constitution. And so in 2020, you all might remember, there were three ballot measures in uh, Mississippi, one of them being to remove a um, one of those provisions that was placed in the constitution. The Mississippi House of, House of Representatives put on the legislature to, to have people vote on about whether or not they wanted um, to remove this Jim Crow provision that allowed in statewide elections for um, the state legislature inevitably to have the last say, right? And so we in Mississippi inevitably had our own version of the Electoral College. Going deeper in some of the things that my team is working on and some of the other folks like One Voice and um, SPLC and others are working on in Mississippi is this issue and MCJ, the Mississippi Center for Justice, um, this issue around felony disenfranchisement because it is the last piece that it, that is that is still perfectly intact, right? And so 
zooming out a little bit, we had this convention in 1890, right off the heels of Reconstruction, and you know, black folks went to Congress. Um, Hiram Revels from Mississippi was the first first black person to go to Congress in this country, and so after that, you know, black folks are hitting this wave, and white folks are like, mm, no, they have too much power, <laughs> and they start really antagonizing the black community. They start going to their political rallies and their forums, uh, really just ruining their communities. And um, there, there's historical evidence of like these massacres, particularly the ones that happened in Clinton and the one that happened in Vicksburg after black folks were elected to these political offices. There's a beautiful account of how, you know, history is just untold in this book called Redemption. And I, I advise folks to check that out. And it lays out like after black folks find their political voice, after slavery and reconstruction comes about white folks want this redemptive era where they seek to really control the narrative around what black folks seeking and having political power means for white folks and their viability in our society and there, there's these fear tactics around there's going to be this insurrection or there's going to be whatever they host after the 1868 Constitutional Convention, they host the 1890 Constitutional Convention after they set up shop and they make their plans for the Mississippi plan. Um, and, and they go into these meetings. They break out into economic committees. They break out into education committees. They break out into um, franchise committees. And, and that is the largest committee, the largest committee. And they that's where we get poll taxes, the grandfather clause, disenfranchising crimes. The birth of Jim Crow happens in 1890. There's been a lot of undoing of that in the last couple of years. But now we have have this more intact version of uh, felony disenfranchisement laws and what started out as nine crimes in 1890 is now 23 that includes voter fraud which we all know is the height of confusion and like what is that is that really happening is that really a thing inside the 1890 constitutional convention too as they were writing the disenfranchisement laws they were like okay so what happens when um a white person is convicted of one of these crimes like how do they get their rights back and so they write in the small contingency who will have access to their legislators can get a bill of suffrage passed in their name through both chambers and restore their rights now since 2013 only a handful of people have gotten their rights to vote back through that particular process. There's a saying in my office, every time we pardon somebody, the governor pardons somebody, it's an act of Congress and it's literally all over the news because that's how much it does not happen. I think it's really important for people to hear you talk about this because, again, too many Americans, white Americans, want to act as if the voting discrimination in this country ended in 1965 with the Voting Rights Act, that the remnants of Jim Crow were swept away in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, that when President Obama won, the world changed. And to hear you talk beyond the culture of racism and the culture of disenfranchisement, the actual manifestations, the tactile ways in which the racist policies executed remained in place in the case of the one provision it sounds like until 2020 in the case of felon disenfranchisement to this moment as we sit here it remains in place not because at some point uh, the legislature made a 
judgment about who should or shouldn't be part of the electorate based on felony conviction, but because a racist constitutional convention was called, and this was a manifestation of it, and it's still in place today. I do you want better. Like <laughs> the application to restore your suffrage is not made public to the people. So there's also like a lack of democratic process in that as well. So if there's a people process to get your suffrage back, make it clear and concise, right? And so there there isn't a criteria for the folks who go through this process. It's just literally who's ever sitting on the committees that's taking up those suffrage applications, they get to decide, well, I like I like this person's path to to recovery or I like this story and and you know it's really just this pick and choose there's no clear criteria in every legislator that I've talked to um, they can't tell me what step one through step five would be we talk about uh, the new ways that Mississippi are disenfranchising voters today and this would not have been possible if the U.S. Supreme Court had not ruled in Shelby County versus Holder that <clears throat> times in the South had changed, in their words, um, not mine, and that there was no longer a need for protections to be in place to prevent the discrimination, the increased uh, adding new laws to discriminate against black voters in states like Alabama and Mississippi under the Voting Rights Act it was, as it was passed initially and then reauthorized. Mississippi was covered by Section 5, which meant that before Mississippi could change a voting law, it had to be reviewed either by a federal court in Washington, D.C. or the Department of Justice to make sure it didn't disadvantage black voters. What has that meant? What is the Supreme Court's telling you that times have changed and that's no longer necessary. What has that meant for you and for the organization and for black voters in Mississippi? That has been a reality check for, for us about, you know, our position in this country. And it's also been a reinforcer that like, we've got to really, really reckon with and redefine what we mean when we say democracy, because it's very clear to people of color and folks from the deep south who are, you know, black or indigenous, what, you know, democracy, if you Google the word, what it means, right? But in practice, I don't know if we all have the same definition. And for our work, it's been a little hard to get people to believe that democracy is possible because every time, you know, there is some level of progress happening. You get the stripping of the Voting Rights Act, the very thing that is supposed to protect Jim Crow from not realiving himself, right? And it's been a hard thing to try to like, especially older black people, um, to get them to, and people think it's young people, but really older black people have no faith in this system. Um, and, and to no fault of their own, they've lived in a country where they've seen the country at its ugliest, um, and they know what, what racism is capable of. And, you know, when you think about 2011, 2011 was such a big year for me in learning and unlearning what I thought democracy was and could be because it was my first time as a voter. There was a ballot initiative and it was a gubernatorial election. And 2011 was also when we let this fall by the wayside when um, a lot of a lot of uh, states across the country, including Mississippi, put voter ID on the ballot. 
So ballot measures, be very clear, used to be a very conservative tool in Mississippi, but now it's being, um, you know, paraded and patented as this very um, radical tool when that's how we got voter ID. But after the Supreme Court decision of Shelby v. Holder, um, we lost the ability to really rally behind like how why this is such a problematic tool why voter id is such a problematic thing and then you see this wide sweep across the nation of folks having having that kind of thing other in years prior to that we wouldn't have had um to deal with that at the state level right like the supreme court would have seen all of those things and been like no nah, you can't do that but because of this we have a lot of a lot of unpeeling to do still so it brought back a lot of fear in people being able to even participate. And when you think about accessibility for a voter ID or for an ID in general, there are so many rural towns and villages in Mississippi. Of the 290-something municipalities, there's an overwhelming about of towns and villages as well who have to travel to the next town over to get a P.O. box address or to get their mail or whatever it is. Um, and the DMV isn't accessible and public transportation is quite literally not a thing. So when we talk about barriers and accessibility, like this is a very fine-tuned machine of disinvesting and disenfranchising voters who are living on the edge of what it means to be marginalized what i said earlier like there's there's a real starving of um a real starvation of people power happening right in front of us yeah so you you said something that really strikes me do you think that part of what is happening is an effort by the anti-voting forces by by the folks who are trying to make voting harder do you think they want black voters to lose hope you know you you said i could almost see that being you said that older black voters in particular are like losing faith in the system that is a form of voter suppression in and of itself right because then people if if there's if you don't have faith in the system why participate yeah that's i feel like that's a tactic i know for sure um because if you think about it like this, older black folks, my mama's age, they lived um, through Brown v. Board of Education, right? And so that significant piece of that landmark decision, like, kind of dictated what their lives were going to be like, what their education was going to be like, and really embedded what they felt like they could be in America. Um, and so there was this sense of hope and urgency right around that moment. And then you get the 1960s and um, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil all of these different things that every moment in history, right? And then you get right up until the, the presidential election of Barack Obama and they're like, whoo, we did a thing, right? And then you see the unpeeling happen again with the election of Donald Trump. And you get folks like my mama who are like, you know what? I knew, I knew this country was capable of some ugly things and I'm not surprised. And though she's still participating in this process, there are folks in our church and folks who are connected to our community who are like, I just don't understand, right? And then you've got this consistent tug of war. There, we are hopeful people, don't get me wrong, but there's something that folks my mama's age know about this country that I, I never will because they've lived and seen 
the battles happen over and over again and they continue to participate in ways that make sense for them in their lives to to really really suck out the hope in a people and a community um of a, of people who've seen the best and the worst of the country is a tactic that i don't think um we we've considered as genius as it has played out in mississippi look at how low voter turnout has been in the last couple elections um and tell me about hope so speaking of hope i'm going to ask you uh what people should be doing and can be doing but the issue that right now everybody asks me about i mean from everywhere in the country social media you know in person everybody is very focused right now on a law i believe that is working its way through the legislature that seems to target the black community in the largest city in the state i mean it almost seems like something out of a like a movie about like the Jim Crow South in the 50s, what they're doing. Can you can you help explain to me and to everyone what is this about? It, it's it about the prosecutor and courts and redrawing lines. Like what, is it as terrible as all of us seem on the outside of Mississippi seem to think it is? It's probably a little worse than what you think it is because living here and living it and seeing it is something totally different. Um, and to understand that, you have to understand the history of the state's um, real, real pushback and um, problems with our city and the desire for the state to take over the city of Jackson. You've seen it when they were trying to take over our um, our local school system at Jackson Public Schools. You've seen it when they tried to take over our airport. You've seen it with the downtown annexation bill. And now we're seeing it again when they're trying to establish a, a police state, right? And everyone, and just, so, just so that everyone knows who may not be familiar with Mississippi, Jackson is the largest city in the state and it is a it has a very large black population. It's majority black city. Jackson is the blackest city in our state, and Mississippi is the blackest state in the country. House Bill 1020, it's um, the Capital Complex Improvement District um, Expansion Bill. So Hines County is Mississippi's most populous county. It's where Jackson is. It's the capital city of the state, which is also the state's biggest city. Hines County and Jackson are majority black. In Hines County, duly elected judges and prosecutors are, are, are majority African-Americans, right? And so House Bill 1020 will require over 18% of Jackson's normal allocation of sales tax revenue to be given to the Capital Complex Improvement District. And it would en enlarge the Capital Complex Improvement District's area and thrust it deeper into purely residential areas of Northeast Jackson which is way downtown where Capitol Police who have shot and killed multiple black people recently have no right or reason to be. House Bill 1020 would empower a slate of all white Mississippi state officials to appoint unelected judges and unelected prosecutors in majority black Hines County. You see the remnants of like racism, yes, and also this anti-democracy piece where we have unelected folks um, really taking over Jackson with, with, with a board of unelected folks, judges, prosecutors, and chief of, of, of police. And it, it really strips 
elected judges in Hines County of the right to preside over any cases brought against the state of Mississippi. Um, and so there's, I, there's so, so many things about this bill that are super bad. But I think what really blows me as a person who is not only native to Mississippi, but a Jackson resident native of Jackson, um, is that it would create a state-occupied, extrajudicial territory controlled entirely by white folks. You know, frankly, this is ruthlessly racist and it's anti-democratic and it's it's the antithesis of everything that my life's work has been about. It should really be given an award. The resilience of Mississippi folks, particularly black folks from Jackson, um, have persevered through all kinds of attacks. Because like I said, this isn't anything new. The state of Mississippi has repeatedly tried to take over the city of Jackson. From 2011 to 2014, there were commissions created um, that would con that consisted of members hand-selected by the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the speaker to oversee the disbursement of um, the $15 million per year um, that the city would get in, in, in certain goods in the city limits. So we can go on and on down a timeline. I think Ariel Nave writes a wonderful brief history of how the city has been consistently um, undermined or tried to be undermined by the state and its majority white leadership. What you describe is a tragedy. I mean, it is a tragedy for this country and something that everyone in the country, whether you live in, you know, Vancouver, Washington, or Jacksonville, Florida, or Maine, or Southern California, or Chicago, or in Mississippi, like everyone needs to pay attention to this because it is, as you say, it is, it is in 2023 today, a, as you said, a ruthlessly racist takeover of the judiciary. You know, we talk a lot about the challenges with the courts. We talk a lot about the challenges of racism. Um, and one of the things about the courts is that we expect them to be the last row of protection. That's not to say the courts don't fail us. The courts fail, but 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 they are but they are there to protect people against anti-democracy, against voter suppression, against racism. And here you what looks to be is just an effort to take that away like to remove that barrier and turn the courts into something that is intentionally not going to protect the community of Jackson, Mississippi. What do the what do the legislature what do they say they're doing? Like what's the like how do they even explain this? They can't. And so and I don't mean to like laugh and make light of it, but like it's really ridiculous the arguments, right? So number one, this particular bill is not introduced by a Jacksonian or a member of the Hines County delegation. He's from Senatobia, Mississippi. Okay. Doesn't even concern him, but part of his argument is like, I want to protect the capital city. Well, where were you when we were asking you to vote on X amount of dollars a couple of years ago and you voted against it? There are there are so many um, 
so many narratives that have no basis in truth in them about how the legislative body, which again, overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly male, overwhelmingly Republican, conservative folks. Um, I think one of the legislators put it, I might get in trouble for saying this, but I am quoting somebody. Um, one of the legislators the other day during um, the reading of the bill said, this is a Klan meeting in suits. He's not wrong because literally that is how it felt in the in the gallery that day and two there's so many folks who have a lot to say about Jackson in the state legislature who are not from Jackson who vote against every pro Jackson bill um, and it just the Hines County delegation is only so strong right you need comrades and you need other folks who believe and have the values that you have which is why i feel like the work that you know we've been doing in coalition with other organizations and the work that we've been doing at mississippi votes action fund to prepare the next generation of folks to run for office and have a set of values that are clear and lean towards the way that mississippi is moving um, because again, make no mistake, we're getting more young and more diverse and um, the, the electorate looks different. The electorate believes differently. And so the state legislature should make should, should reflect that. And you can hear legislators on local news outlets. The lieutenant governor the other day was on Super Talk Radio um, talking specifically about the mayor underperforming. And really what it is is an attack on the mayor's character. Um, Jackson is one of the most unapologetically black cities in the country. Um, we have a black mayor who's the mayor of the blackest city in the state. And... Um, we are very self-determined people and you know we make those choices communally about how we want to engage in um, different things like budgeting and so they're, they're just all of these revolutionary ideas about how black folks are thinking about governance that feel like a threat to the powers that be and that is why there's so much energy around taking over the city of Jackson. Well, it's something um, I know our audience and, and Democracy Docket is going to follow and continue to follow, particularly the portion that deals with the courts, because it looks like, as you say, the white conservative um, Republican legislature has decided that they want to take over the court system. Not that the people of Jackson want to change in their court system, but the legislature does. And it that raises separation of powers problems. It raises, obviously, serious issues involving racism and, uh, and, and local control of courts. I mean, it just, it seems terrible from every possible vantage, and it's happening today. It's not happening in a history book. It's not happening, you know, two generations ago. It's not something your parents saw. It is something, if you're listening to this, it is something you are sitting by and not doing something about if you're not doing something about it because it's happening today. So that brings me to my question. What is it that gives you hope? What is it you want people to be doing? What is it people in Mississippi can do? What is it people outside of Mississippi can do? Like, how could we help? You know, talking about and amplifying the, the issues in Mississippi feels like, woe is us, right? And, you know, there they go again. But I said it before and I said it again. 
the trajectory of Mississippi is the trajectory of the country. And so we got to really decide who we want to be as a democracy. And in order to really do that, we've got to look at the people of Mississippi and what they're doing. So don't think that we're rolling over and taking it. We are not. We are fighting. We are coalescing and we are organized. There's a coalition that Mississippi Votes is a part of, um, Jackson Undivided, and we meet all the time, every day, and we are preparing. Monday, we're going to talk to the Hines County delegation. We're going to push for um, a public hearing, and you know, we're going to invite young folks and people who are from the city um, to really speak out in days after that initial meeting to really talk about like how this impacts them. And also, you got to remember this: these are the people who employ you. You are a state legislator whose election is in November, your primaries are in August, don't piss your employer off because people like me who knock on their doors all the time are excited to tell them um, about your voting record. Keeping those things in mind. So number one is investing in the coalition's work, investing in the collective work that we're up to. Um, signing this petition, we're collecting to um, stop House Bill 1020. Right now, it's in. It's made it out of the House, and it's in. I believe the Judiciary A Committee on the Senate side. So we still have time to stop this thing, but it's going to take national outcry, and it's going to take a lot of lot of support of the local organizing happening in Mississippi. Well, I hope everybody listening does that, uh, and I hope that they talk about it. You know, in their break rooms, uh, at the coffee shop, around their dinner tables, because what's happening there is around this is absolutely wrong. And, you know, the point that you make, Mississippians are going to fight this. And Mississippians are not, as you say, just woe is us. Like, you guys are out there fighting. You're fighting for a fairer, more inclusive society, for a democracy that allows everyone to participate. And frankly, it is against a history, a shameful history in your in, in the state. Um, but uh, everyone needs to embrace that this is the moment, you know. When, you, when people look back 20 years from now, and look at this moment in time, they're going to ask you, your kids are going to ask you, your grandkids are going to ask you, what did you do? You know, what did you do? I mean, you know, just like you might, you know, if you're living in Minnesota right now, listening to this podcast, you may have asked your grandparent, hey, what did you do in 1964? You know, where were you when, when you know, when the freedom rides were going on? And, and, and you were curious about that. Well, people are going to want to know, what did you do when this was happening in Mississippi again? when Jim Crow was uh, a provision of the state constitution from 1890 was still, you know, being enforced, when when the state was taking over um, Jackson's court system, what were you doing? So I hope everyone listening will will help you and your organization and your cause, and you are welcome back anytime you want uh, on our podcast. You're welcome. Anytime you have information you want to share on Democracy Docket, please let us know. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Defending Democracy. To find out more and stay up to date on the latest voting rights, elections, and democracy news, visit democracydocket.com and subscribe to our free daily and weekly newsletters. If you enjoyed the program today, please leave a review. We'll see you next time. Today's episode was produced by Paige Moskowitz, Alexa Rothenberg, and Sophie Feldman. It was edited by Paige Moskowitz with help from Sophie Feldman. Defending Democracy is a production of Democracy Docket, LLC.